Tonight, we're, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of John that we've been on for some time, and, uh, and we're picking up the text in John chapter 17, so you can please open your Bible, and, uh, and we're going to read from there in just a minute, but I want to first set the scene, remind us a bit of where we are at in the story of Jesus. Jesus is sitting at the table with his disciples. His whole life has now come down to one week. That week has come down to one evening, one meal, and now that meal is at its end. Jesus has been preparing his disciples for what is about to take place. This is a set succession conversation. He wants his disciples to be prepared for everything they're about to witness because the next day he's going to die. But even more than that, he wants them to know what he expects of them. He wants them to continue the work that he's begun. He wants them to continue to bring the message of the kingdom out to the world. He wants them to know that he is sending them the Holy Spirit so that they have the means to continue the work. And he wants them to know that even though it will look like Jesus has lost, and that the last three years have been for nothing, that everything that they are about to witness, everything that's going to unfold, is for their good. That they should have hope. But now their time in that upper room is ending, and they're about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will be arrested. But before that, John tells us that Jesus prayed. And he prayed in such a way that his disciples could hear it. And John wrote it down. And we have that prayer here in John 17. Now, there are a lot of prayers recorded in the scriptures, but there are a couple things that make this particular prayer unique. The first thing is that when someone knows they're going to die, there is a kind of laser focus to their thoughts and their words. They don't pull any punches. Their hearts are on their sleeves. So what we have here in Jesus' last prayer before he goes to the cross represents his heart for his disciples. Here we see what was most important to him, what he cared about at the deepest level, but it's not just that. It is about who is praying so we have lots of prayers in the scriptures, but in this particular prayer, we have a conversation within the Trinity. This is God speaking to God. There is no conversation in history more important than this. So what does Jesus say to his father? What is most important to Jesus? What does he ask that's what I want us to look at today in the, verse, in the first 19 verses of the text. We're going to pay, pay close attention to three requests in Jesus' prayer. First, Jesus prays for glory. He asks for the Father to glorify him. Second, he prays for the Father to keep his people in his name. And third, he prays that the Father would make his people holy. So let's look at the first, and we'll, we'll look at the first five verses. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This section begins and ends with glory. And let me acknowledge at the outset that I think this is going to be a bit of a hard one for people in our culture's frame of reference to, to really embrace. See, at its most fundamental level, glory is about prestige. It's renown. It's about making a big deal of the one who has been glorified. And yet to desire glory as we often think about it, it, it usually isn't a good thing. It's something that people do when they're narcissistic, self-centered, full of themselves. And so it, it, it's a bit hard for us to fully take on board why Jesus would ask for this. I want you to just, just think about the, the line in O Canada, um, God keep our land glorious and free, right? It occurred to me the other day that most Canadians don't actually think all that much about the glory of Canada. This is not something that really concerns us. It's not something that we long for. We don't really... It doesn't feel like a good fit. And I sometimes wonder if, if we were to rewrite O Canada today, how would it go? And I know there's certainly some who would say, okay, God needs to be taken out of it. But I think that second part, glorious and free, I think we would just rather have it say, O Canada, it's okay, I guess, I'm sorry. <laughs> so is it okay that Jesus' first concern as he prays to his heavenly father at the end of his life is for him to be glorified? I'm going to argue that it is. And here's why. We are legitimately concerned when a person wants to make a big deal of themselves, wants all the attention on themselves, wants to be put up on a pedestal, and they do not deserve it. Right? I don't think I need to cite any examples. I just trust you to know. Okay? But I think we can all recognize that there, it is a legitimate problem when something is glorious or someone is glorious. When glory is deserved but it is denied or it's ignored. As Crystal mentioned, I lived in Whistler for, for eight years, and uh, over that time, I got to ride the Whistler gondola many times. It's a 26-minute 20, journey from the village to the top. I remember this one day that I, I got on the gondola, and, it, and at the bottom, it's totally foggy. It's socked in, just thick like soup. And as we're rising up through this cloud, everything is getting brighter and brighter and brighter, and everything just seems to be glowing in this 
omnidirectional golden glow, and then the light is filtering through the trees in, in these beautiful rays, and then all of a sudden you pop out, and it is this full 360-degree panorama of blue sky, of crisp white mountains, and like depths of fresh powder. And so for 26 minutes, it's just wow after wow after wow. However, for 26 minutes also, there was a boy named Larry. Let's call him Gary. Um, and Gary did not want to go skiing with his mom. He wanted to be at home playing video games. And he was screaming and he was stamping his feet and he was kicking his mom just below the knee with his ski boot. And aside from me sitting there Googling, can a six-year-old be arrested? Um, <laughs> it occurred to me that in that moment to miss out on the glory that was surrounding us was just wrong. It was criminal to miss it, to, to denigrate it, to not recognize it for its excellence. Now, we all recognize that there are times when someone is legitimately glorious. At a wedding, nobody begrudges a bride for being the center of attention. No one says, why are you wearing that? Everyone is looking at you. That is the point. She is doing exactly what she is supposed to do. That's how things are when things are going right. So why is it right for Jesus to ask the Father to glorify him? Well, we need to pay attention to how the Father will glorify him and how the Father in return will be glorified himself by him. And here, the words fame and prestige and renown are, only renown are only barely going to scratch the surface. See, the ultimate glory that Jesus asks for is not about Jesus needing to feel good about himself. Jesus doesn't have self-esteem issues. The glory that Jesus desires, that he longs for, that he prays for, is a glory that blesses whoever beholds it. To see the glory of God is to know him for who he is. In the Old Testament, the cloud, the, the, the glory of God was this very tangible thing. It could be seen, it could be perceived with your senses. It was a cloud that would descend down into the temple or onto Mount Sinai. And, and it was something that was just awe-inspiring, but it was more than just a visual spectacle. It was a demonstration of the Father's character and his power and his purposes, and his goodness, that he could be trusted. Jesus is asking that 
His character and his power would be known, that it would be displayed. But there's even something more to this glory, something that is, that is totally counterintuitive to what anyone would expect. See, the, the glory that Jesus desires, the hour that he has been in, anticipating his entire life and his, throughout his whole ministry is the hour of his death. Now, to a Jewish person, to be taken outside the city and executed on a cross as an enemy of the people was the greatest dishonor and humiliation a person could ever receive. No one who was there at that moment would have said, this is glorious. How then is this glorious in reality? Well, this hour is glorious for Jesus because it is in this hour that everything changes. The Father gives Jesus authority over all people in order to give all people, all of his people, eternal life. Now just think about that word for a minute. Eternal life. Sometimes if we've been a Christian for a long time, if you've been in the church, if you've heard that word often, it can go into your ear, through your nerves, into your temporal lobe, but it never really lands in your heart. But the word death lands, doesn't it? When you get that news, that phone call, that someone that you love has died, it lands. When you meet with a doctor and the doctor gives you a time frame, a window, and it's months or weeks or days, it lands. And when it lands, we, there's very little we can do to keep from being crushed by the weight of it. There's nothing that can relieve us of its force except Jesus. He is the word who gave life to everything and he is the one who has the authority to give life, eternal life. Jesus' hour where he will die, where he will be executed in humiliation is the hour in which that gift of life is realized where it becomes possible. And that is glorious. So Jesus also gives glory to his father by laying down his life. Every moment from his arrests to his trials, every step he takes from Gethsemane to Golgotha is a conscious choice to glorify the father, to say yes to the justice and the holiness of God, yes to, the right, to, to God's righteous wrath against sin, yes to demolishing Satan's power to accuse, yes to breaking the power of death, yes to God's God's love for his people, yes, to paying the ultimate price for them to have life. Yes, to the Father's work of making all things new. So yes, Jesus prays that he would be glorified. Why? So that the world would behold him. So that for the first time, 
in a way they have never seen before, they would see who it is that has come to give them life. To miss that glory is not only a crime against him, it is also the greatest tragedy for us. Jesus prays for his glory. Let's look at his second request, verses 6 to 15. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. All yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and, your word, and the world has hated me, sorry, hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now there is a lot in this passage, but at the heart of it, this is a prayer for, for the Father to keep Jesus' followers in his name. This is a prayer for protection. Jesus knows that the, the disciples are going to go through incredible difficulties for the last four chapters. He's been sitting with them at the Last Supper. He's been preparing them for, uh, for everything that they're about to see because they're gonna see him go through arrest and trial and torture and execution. And when that happens, they are going to think that this is it. This is, a, this is a defeat. Jesus knows that they're going to uh, be rejected by the world. The world is going to hate them. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. See, Jesus was a challenge to the world then just as much as he is today. In every age, there have been people who have found some things that Jesus says to be agreeable, but not everything. And the things that they have found most objectionable are actually at the very heart of Jesus' teaching and Jesus' mission. What is it? Well, Jesus came to reign as king. He came to be Lord and Master. At one point, some people come up and they ask Jesus if they should be paying taxes to Caesar. Jesus says, take out a coin. Whose, whose image is on it? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. He says, give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? There's no problem with that. Nobody has any objection to that. There's no law against paying taxes. But then, 
Jesus says, give to God what is God's. Let me ask you this. Who bears, who or what bears God's image? Who is God's? I am. You are. Every human being that has ever lived is rightfully his. Rendering unto God what is God's puts every person in this culture and in any culture into conflict with Jesus because there can be only one Lord and Master. If Jesus is Lord, I'm not. That makes Jesus a threat. And that's what sets Jesus' followers at odds with the world. And so mocking, rejection, systematic persecution, and death are all consequences of taking Jesus' message out into the world. There is that, and there is also, you know, the devil. Jesus prays in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, the text does not explicitly say evil one. It just says evil. There is an evil one, but there is more than one evil. Jesus knows his disciples are not only going to be rejected by the world, but they are also going to face an onslaught of spiritual attack. These these spiritual forces are not just personifications of human institutions or human human, uh, systems, but these are real beings with real intellect, real emotion, real will, real power, and a whole lot of experience in what they do to cause all kinds of harm and chaos to God's people. And the disciples rightfully wondered what hope could they possibly have against Rome, against the religious establishment, against Satan and all the powers of darkness. This is just a bunch of ordinary people. How could they take Jesus' mission forward? How could they not be scattered, much less actually go out into the world and be his ambassadors? The disciples are anxious. But Jesus prays for them. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now, the name of God here communicates two realities. The first is power, that there is power in the name itself. But it is also a claim upon these people that they belong to him. And if they belong to him, then who could possibly stand against them? As Romans 8 says, if Christ is for us, if if God is for us, who could possibly stand against us? Nothing less than the full force of the greatest power that has ever existed is brought to bear to protect those who are given this name. As we sing in the song, no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck them. From his hand. It will be hard for them. Within a day, they will see Jesus die. And it will look like evil has won. 
It will look like they never had a chance. But then three days later, they will see what the power of the name can do. And this changes everything. By the power of the name, Jesus will conquer death and the spirit will come. 11 scared men and a handful of faithful women will be the seed by which God's spirit will grow the church, this gathering of Jesus' followers, not just into an institution, not just into a movement, but into one family that spans across every tribe and language and nation, bound together by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. What we need to understand from this 2,000 years later, the, the power of this name has come to us. Are you anxious? He has put his name upon you. He keeps you in his name. Who can stand against you? Jesus' third request is that his disciples would be made holy. Look at verse 16 to 19. Jesus says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Now, there are two words here, uh, sanctify and consecrate. They're both the same word. The bo the, they both mean to make holy. Let me ask you the question, this question. Do you want to be holy? You don't, you know, it's okay. You don't have to answer. I, I've done a lot of marriage studies over the years, and one of my favorite books is this book called, called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. And in the book, he makes the, the, the statement that, God doesn't necessarily intend for marriage to make us happy. He intends it to make us holy. It's always interesting to me when we read that statement together in a room, to kind of read people's body language or pay attention to what comes out of their mouths, because usually it's something kind of like, Ugh. I was kind of hoping it would be happiness, you know? Like, that's kind of what I signed up for. Why? Because we all know what happiness is, but we don't actually get what holiness is. It doesn't sound like too much fun. But here in Jesus' last day, in his last meal, in his last prayer with his disciples, Jesus' burden is holiness. He says, I make myself holy so that they will be made holy. I have lived to make you holy and I am going to die to make you holy. I will willingly allow myself to be tortured and murdered in order that you would be holy. Your holiness is everything to me. What I submit to you is that if you don't, if holiness is not something you want, maybe it's something you haven't really understood yet. So let's talk about it. What is this holiness Jesus prays for? The most basic definition of holiness means to be set apart as, as special, 
Holiness is not inclusive. Holiness is definitely exclusive. You know, whenever I have to fly somewhere, uh, I am on the plane in in the back of the plane uh, in the cheap seats with the unwashed masses of which I am one. And so we're back there. We are competing for the, the, the thin armrest for our elbow space. We are competing for the overhead bin storage, which there's never enough. We are sharing the same air molecules, and there is this curtain in front of us, this sacred curtain where things are very different because on the other side of that curtain, there is space. On the other side of that curtain, there is service, there is comfort, there is class. In the back, two washrooms for 300 people only cleaned every thousandth use. In the front, two washrooms for 30 people. And they're beautiful, they're pristine. When the flight gets underway, that curtain is closed and you Just see what happens should you try and cross through the sacred curtain. You know what you get? You get wrath, okay? You cannot cross. Those people are set apart. They are special. We understand that there is this concept of being set apart. On on her wedding day, a bride and groom are setting themselves apart from everyone else. They are setting themselves apart for one another. No one gets to make eyes at the bride except the groom. No one gets to make eyes at the groom except the bride. And traditionally, wedding vows, or, or at least the way they are supposed to be, for all you engaged couples, take note, wedding vows involve a claim of exclusivity. You say, I vow to love, comfort, and honor you in sickness and in health, forsaking all others to be faithful to you for as long as we both shall live. That forsaking is important. That is intrinsic to what makes marriage marriage. It is special. We could say it is holy. Jesus prays that we would be holy. So how are we made holy? Well, Jesus says, Holy Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus' disciples are already going to be different by virtue of their connection to the truth. When everyone else is born and raised and entrenched and enslaved to the lie, to speak the truth means that you are set apart. You are different, and hence all of the hostility you invite because you no longer belong. You're no longer one of them. But Jesus has brought them to the truth, and that changes everything. It also changes them. The Apostle Peter writes to the churches, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So to be a Christian is to be set apart. That's why Peter calls us a holy priesthood. We've been taken out. We are, we are special. But Peter also calls us something very interesting, a, a chosen race, an eclectos genos, right? That's like, think the word genetics. What is Peter saying here with this label? He's saying that our heavenly father's adopted children 
begin to be like him. Now, back 2,000 years ago, they didn't know about DNA. What did they know? They know that kids look like their daddies. At our staff Christmas party a month ago, uh, we played a game where we had a, a bunch of pictures up on the screen. And uh, we had pictures of a bunch of pastors, myself included, when we were all very we. And they had to match the, the, uh, the, the pastor to their picture. And guess what? Nobody had any problem identifying which, which picture was of me. Do you wanna know why? Because I have three clones. I have three little boys who look exactly like me. You take a picture of me as a five-year-old and you take my five-year-old and you would think they are the same person. I have such gorgeous children. <laughs> they get it from their mom. When we become holy, we become like our heavenly father. But Peter also uses the term a holy nation, a hagion ethnos. Ethnicity is not just a group of people who live within a bounded set of borders. They are people who share something. They share a common life, a common way of doing things, a common way of, of viewing the world, often a common language, food, everything. Shared ways of thinking. Peter isn't saying that when you become a Christian, all of a sudden you're, you're going to change languages, right? Like Greek Christians don't start speaking Hebrew. But there is such a profound change in all of us, whatever our cultural background, that Peter says we actually constitute a new people group. Whatever culture we come from, we now have so much in common with one another that we have become a new ethnicity. Our character is being transformed. We are becoming more like our Father. We are becoming more transformed to be like Jesus. We take on, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We change. But there's something more even yet to our holiness. Jesus prays for our holiness. This is the most important part. Jesus prays for our holiness so that we can be welcomed into this relationship, community, enjoyment, intimacy, that has been shared between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity past. This is the heart of the whole prayer, that we would be holy so that where he is, we can also be. I was once um, on a flight home uh, from, from a missions trip, and we had a stop in Dubai. And uh, in that short little stop, uh, one of my team members named Joey, that's his real name, he decided to play Wandering Sheep, and so in the, one of the largest airports in the world. Anyway, after two of the most stressful hours of my life looking for him, I finally made it onto the plane. I was the last one at the gate uh, before they closed the door, and I ran all the way down that jetway 
until I get to the plane and then I'm stopped and they look at my ticket and the, and the, the flight attendant says, oh, sir, this, this isn't your door. My heart just sank, and then he said, you need to go back the way you came, but before you get to the end of the jetway, you want to turn right. I said, what? He said, look at your ticket. I didn't realize my, my ticket had been changed by the gate agent. Instead of 97F next to the toilet, I now had 2A. You know where 2A is? It is on the other side of the sacred curtain. I was in business class on Emirates for the next 15 hours. I ran to my seat, I sat down, and they said, you look like you've had a hard day. Can I get you a glass of wine? I said, could you get me two? <laughs> Moderation in all things, brothers and sisters. And then they came around and they said, what would you like for dinner? And I said, well, what are, the, what are the two options? They said, we have way more than two options. What would you like? And I said, uh, I'm just trying to think of the nicest thing I can have. So I said, uh, could I have filet mignon? And they said, why don't we bring you two? And I'm like, oh, we're going to get along great, aren't we? And then after my beautiful meal, I was just so relaxed. And then they came around and said, you look tired. Would you like us to make your bed for you? I just thought, what kind of an aircraft is this? And they're like, we're, we're going to put a mattress down. And I'm just like, It was just 15 hours of awesome after awesome after awesome. I was on the other side of the sacred Curtain. Also, I forgave Joey. We're good. <laughs> See, Jesus' time with his disciples at the Last Supper had been about more than just giving them courage, more than just a pep talk. In a very real sense, you could say, Jesus was reading them his own will. And in that will... He gives them everything. The law of Moses had reiterated over and over again, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. And there's this burden, there's this wall that we cannot breach, that we can never be holy enough. We know this. We, we know that we are not able to, to perform to what is expected of us. And we worry that whatever progress we make is lost whenever someone is doing 10 kilometers below the speed limit on down. Road. It's like we're all the way back to zero again. We never feel like we are good enough. And yet, Jesus makes himself holy so that we may, might be made holy. The amazing thing about this prayer is it contains a lot of asks. None of those asks are of us. Everything is asked of the Father to be done for us. Everything is about bringing us in where we can enjoy fellowship and life and joy with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All over this, all over this prayer are the words give and receive. 
The Father gives to the Son. The Son gives to the Father. Now it is handed to us. Yes, Jesus does not take us out of the world. This world is full of trouble. He's already said that. John chapter 16. Why are we still in this mess of a world? Why are we still in these bodies that fail when we just so want and long to be with the Lord? He's brought us in to the work of his Father. That we should spread the news of the kingdom. That others would have eternal life. That we should join in what his Father is doing in making all things new. That we would be a kind of first fruits of new creation, of the new heaven and the new earth. This is a very different kind of inheritance because normally when someone gets an inheritance, they get all the stuff, but you lose the person. Jesus gives us all the stuff, but he also gives us himself. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know here, this is not just intellectual awareness. This is not just acceptance of a fact. It is intimacy. It is relationship. It is to share life with. It is to come home to the home that none of us have ever known, but the home that we were made for, the home that we all long for, where we will be safe, where we will be secure, where we will be accepted, where we will have joy, happiness. Do you want to be holy? As preachers, we often want to look for some very practical applications, some things that we can give you other than just information so that when you walk out of here, you can walk changed. And yet here, with this prayer, there's something different about it that I want to be very restrained. Why? Because every single ask in this prayer is not of you. What is asked is asked of God to do for you. And yet, this prayer was said so that the disciples would hear it and that John would write it down and that we would read it and hear it here today. So what do we do with this text? All I would ask is that we behold him. See him for who he really is. Understand what he has actually done for you. If you can behold him, everything will change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in this world. And in this world, we all have trouble, as, as Jesus told us. And that's hard. And Lord, each one of us carries many worries, many burdens into this room here tonight. Lord, as we think about our lives, about our situation, all the things that we face, would you help us behold you? Behold your glory. Behold the power of your name. Behold 
the hour of glory in which Jesus laid down his life that we would have eternal life, not just a life that doesn't end, but a life that is filled with life, filled with peace, filled with joy, filled with love forever and ever. That you would make us strong and you would use us as your witnesses in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.